Section three of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Civil Law, Part Two. Section ten. The defects of the law these then are the chief advantages to be derived from the exclusion of individual judgment by fixed principles of law nevertheless these benefits are not obtained save at a heavy cost the law is without doubt a remedy for greater evils yet it brings with it evils of its own some of them are inherent in its very nature others are the outcome of tendencies which however natural are not beyond the reach of effective control the first defect of a legal system is its rigidity a general principle of law is the product of a process of abstraction it results from the elimination and disregard of the less material circumstances in the particular cases falling within its scope and the concentration of attention upon the more essential elements which these cases have in common we cannot be sure that in applying a rule so obtained the elements so disregarded may not be material in the particular instance and if they are so and we make no allowance for them the result is error and injustice this possibility is fully recognized in departments of practice other than the law the principles of political economy are obtained by the elimination of every motive save the desire for wealth but we do not apply them blindfold to individual cases without first taking account of the possibly disturbing influence of the eliminated elements in law it is otherwise for here a principle is not a mere guide to the due exercise of a rational discretion but a substitute for it it is to be applied without any allowance for special circumstances and without turning to the right hand or to the left the result of this inflexibility is that however carefully and cunningly a legal rule may be framed there will in all probability be some special instances in which it will work hardship and injustice and prove a source of error instead of a guide to truth so infinitely various are the affairs of men that it is impossible to lay down general principles which will be true and just in every case if we are to have general rules at all we must be content to pay this price the time-honoured maxim summum jus est summa injuria is an expression of the fact that few legal principles are so founded in truth that they can be pushed to their extremest logical conclusions without leading to injustice the more general the principle the greater is that elimination of immaterial elements of which it is the result and the greater therefore is the chance that in its rigid application it may be found false on the other hand the more carefully the rule is qualified and limited and the greater the number of exceptions and distinctions to which it is subject the greater is the difficulty and uncertainty of its application in attempting to escape from the evils which flow from the rigidity of the law we incur those due to its complexity and we do wisely if we discover the golden mean between the two extremes analogous to the vice of rigidity is that of conservatism the former is the failure of the law to conform itself to the requirements of special instances and unforeseen classes of cases the latter is its failure to conform itself to those changes in circumstances and in men's views of truth and justice which are inevitably brought about by the lapse of time 
in the absence of law the administration of justice would automatically adapt itself to the circumstances and opinions of the time but fettered by rules of law courts of justice do the bidding not of the present but of the times past in which those rules were fashioned that which is true to-day may become false to-morrow by change of circumstances and that which is taken to-day for wisdom may to-morrow be recognized as folly by the advance of knowledge this being so some method is requisite whereby the law which is by nature stationary may be kept in harmony with the circumstances and opinions of the time if the law is to be a living organism and not a mere petrification it is necessary to adopt and to use with vigilance some effective instrument of legal development and the quality of any legal system will depend on the efficiency of the means so taken to secure it against a fatal conservatism legislation the substitution of new principles for old by the express declaration of the state is the instrument approved by all civilized and progressive races none other having been found comparable to this in point of efficiency even this however is incapable of completely counteracting the evil of legal conservatism however perfect we may make our legislative machinery the law will lag behind public opinion and public opinion behind the truth another vice of the law is formalism by this is meant the tendency to attribute undue importance to form as opposed to substance and to exalt the immaterial to the level of the material it is incumbent on a perfect legal system to exercise a sound judgment as to the relative importance of the matters which come within its cognizance and a system is infected with formalism in so far as it fails to meet this requirement and raises to the rank of the material and essential that which is in truth inessential and accidental whenever the importance of a thing in law is greater than its importance in fact we have a legal formality the formalism of ancient law is too notorious to require illustration but we are scarcely yet in a position to boast ourselves as above reproach in this matter much legal reform is requisite if the maxim de minimus non curat lex is to be accounted anything but irony the last defect that we shall consider is undue and needless complexity it is not possible indeed for any fully developed body of law to be such that he who runs may read it being as it is the reflection within courts of justice of the complex facts of civilized existence a very considerable degree of elaboration is inevitable nevertheless the gigantic bulk and bewildering difficulties of our own labyrinthine system are far beyond anything that is called for by the necessities of the case partly through the methods of its historical development and partly through the influence of that love of subtlety which has always been the besetting sin of the legal mind our law is filled with needless distinctions which add enormously to its bulk and nothing to its value while they render great part of it unintelligible to any but the expert this tendency to excessive subtlety and elaboration is one that specially affects a system which like our own has been largely developed by way of judicial decisions it is not however an unavoidable defect and the codes which have in modern times been enacted in european countries prove the possibility of reducing the law to a system of moderate size and intelligible simplicity 
from the foregoing considerations as to the advantages and disadvantages which are inherent in the administration of justice according to law it becomes clear that we must guard against the excessive development of the legal system if the benefits of law are great the evils of too much law are not small the growth of a legal system consists in the progressive encroachment of the sphere of law upon that of fact the gradual exclusion of judicial discretion by predetermined legal principles all systems do to some extent and those which recognize precedent as a chief source of law do more especially show a tendency to carry this process of development too far under the influence of the spirit of authority the growth of law goes on unchecked by any effective control and in course of time the domain of legal principle comes to include much that would be better left to the arbitrium of courts of justice at a certain stage of legal development varying according to the particular subject matter the benefits of law begin to be outweighed by those elements of evil which are inherent in it bacon has said after aristotle optima est lex quae minimum relinquit arbitrio judicis however true this may be in general there are many departments of judicial practice to which no such principle is applicable much has been done in recent times to prime the law of morbid growths in many departments judicial discretion has been freed from the bonds of legal principle forms of action have been abolished rules of pleading have been relaxed the credibility of witnesses has become a matter of fact instead of as formerly one of law a discretionary power of punishment has been substituted for the terrible legal uniformity which once disgraced the administration of criminal justice and the future will see further reforms in the same direction we have hitherto taken it for granted that legal principles are necessarily inflexible that they are essentially peremptory rules excluding judicial discretion so far as they extend that they must of necessity be followed blindly by courts of justice even against their better judgment there seems no reason however in the nature of things why the law should not to a considerable extent be flexible instead of rigid should not aid guide and inform judicial discretion instead of excluding it should not be subject to such exceptions and qualifications as in special circumstances the courts of justice shall deem reasonable or requisite there is no apparent reason why the law should say to the judicature do this in all cases whether you consider it reasonable or not instead of do this except in those cases in which you consider that there are special reasons for doing otherwise such flexible principles are not unknown even at the present day and it seems probable that in the more perfect system of the future much law that is now rigid and peremptory will lapse into the category of the conditional it will always indeed be found needful to maintain great part of it on the higher level but we have not yet realized to what an extent flexible principles are sufficient to attain all the good purposes of the law while avoiding much of its attendant evil it is probable for instance that the great bulk of the law of evidence should be of this nature these rules should for the most part guide judicial discretion instead of excluding it in the former capacity being in general founded on experience and good sense they would be valuable aids to the discovery of truth in the latter they are too often the instruments of error section eleven general and special law the whole body of legal rules is divisible into two parts which may be conveniently distinguished as general law and special law 
the former includes those legal rules of which the courts will take judicial notice and which will therefore be applied as a matter of course in any case in which the appropriate subject matter is present special law on the other hand consists of those rules which although they are true rules of law the courts will not recognize and apply as a matter of course but which must be specially proved and brought to the notice of the courts by the parties interested in their recognition in other words the general law is that which is generally applicable it is that which will be applied in all cases in which it is not specially excluded by proof that some other set of principles has a better claim to recognition in the particular instance special law on the contrary is that which has only a special or particular application excluding and superseding the general law in those exceptional cases in which the courts are informed of its existence by evidence produced for that purpose the test of the distinction is judicial notice by this is meant the knowledge which any court ex officio possesses and acts on as contrasted with the knowledge which a court is bound to acquire through the appointed channel of evidence formally produced by the parties a judge may know much in fact of which in law he is deemed ignorant and of which therefore he must be informed by evidence legally produced conversely he may be ignorant in fact of much that by law he is entitled judicially to notice and in such case it is his right and duty to inform himself by such means as seem good to him the general rule on the matter is that courts of justice know the law but are ignorant of the facts the former may and must be judicially noticed while the latter must be proved to which branch of this rule there are however important exceptions there are certain exceptional classes of facts of which because of their notoriety the law imputes a knowledge to the courts similarly there are certain classes of legal rules of which the courts may and indeed must hold themselves ignorant until due proof of their existence has been produced before them these as we have said constitute special as opposed to the general law by far the larger and more important part of the legal system is general law judicial notice recognition and application as a matter of course is the ordinary rule as to this branch of the law we need say nothing more in this place but the rules of special law call for further consideration they fall for the most part into five distinct classes a full account of these must wait till we come to deal with the sources of law in a subsequent chapter but in the meantime it is necessary to mention them as illustrating the distinction with which we are here concerned one local customs immemorial custom in a particular locality has there the force of law within its own territorial limits it prevails over and derogates from the general law of the land but the courts are judicially ignorant of its existence if any litigant will take advantage of it he must specially plead and prove it otherwise the general law will be applied two mercantile customs the second kind of special law consists of that body of mercantile usage which is known as the law merchant the general custom of merchants in the realm of england has in mercantile affairs the force of law it may make for example an instrument negotiable which by the general law of the land is not so this customary law merchant is like local customary law special and not general but unlike local customary law it has the capacity of being absorbed by or taken up into the general law itself 
when a mercantile usage has been sufficiently established by evidence and acknowledged as law by judicial decision it is thereafter entitled to judicial notice the process of proof need not be repeated from time to time the result of this doctrine is a progressive transformation of the rules of the special law merchant into rules of the general law the law of bills of exchange for example was formerly part of the special law merchant requiring to be pleaded and proved as a condition precedent to its recognition and application but successive judicial decisions based upon evidence of this special law have progressively transmuted it into general law entitled to judicial notice and to application as a matter of course three private legislation statutes are of two kinds distinguishable as public and private the distinguishing character of a public act is that judicial notice is taken of its existence and it is therefore one of the sources of the general law a private act on the other hand is one which owing to its limited scope does not fall within the ordinary cognizance of the courts of justice and will not be applied by them unless specially called to their notice by the parties interested examples of private legislation are acts incorporating individual companies and laying down the principles on which they are to be administered acts regulating the navigation of some river or the construction and management of some harbour or any other enactments concerned not with the interests of the realm or the public at large but with those of private individuals or particular localities private legislation is not limited to acts of parliament in most cases though not in all the delegated legislation of bodies subordinate to parliament is private and is therefore a source not of general but of special law the by-laws of a railway company for example or of a borough council are not entitled to judicial notice and form no part of the general law of the land rules of court on the other hand established by the judges under statutory authority for the regulation of the procedure of the courts are constituent parts of the ordinary law four foreign law the fourth kind of special law consists of those rules of foreign law which upon occasion are applied even in english courts to the exclusion of english law experience has shown that justice cannot be efficiently administered by tribunals which refuse on all occasions to recognize any law but their own it is essential in many cases to take account of some system of foreign law and to measure the rights and liabilities of litigants by it rather than by the indigenous or territorial law of the tribunal itself if for example two men make a contract in france which they intend to be governed by the law of france and one of them sues on it in an english court justice demands that the validity and effect of the contract shall be determined by french rather than by english law french rather than english law will therefore be applied in such a case even by english judges the principles which determine and regulate the exclusion of local by foreign law constitute the body of legal doctrine known as private international law foreign law so far as it is thus recognized in english courts becomes by virtue of this recognition in a certain sense english law french law is french as being applied in france but english as being applied in england yet though it is then part of english law as being administered in english courts it is not part of the general law for english courts have no official knowledge of any law save their own five conventional law the fifth and last form of special law is that which has its source in the agreement of those who are subject to it agreement is a juridical fact having two aspects and capable of being looked at from two points of view 
it is both a source of legal rights and a source of law the former of these two aspects is the more familiar and in ordinary cases the more convenient but in numerous instances the latter is profitable and instructive the rules laid down in a contract for the determination of the rights duties and liabilities of the parties may rightly be regarded as rules of law which these parties have agreed to substitute for or add to the rules of the general law agreement is a law for those who make it which supersedes supplements or derogates from the ordinary law of the land modus et conventio vincunt legem to a very large extent though not completely the general law is not peremptory and absolute but consists of rules whose force is conditional on the absence of any other rules agreed upon by the parties interested the articles of association of a company for example are just as much true rules of law as are the provisions of the company's acts or those statutory regulations which apply in the absence of any article specially agreed upon so articles of partnership fall within the definition of law no less than the provisions of the partnership act which they are intended to supplement or modify for both sets of rules are authoritative principles which the courts will apply in all litigation affecting the affairs of the partnership we have made the distinction between general and special law turn wholly upon the fact that judicial notice is taken of the former but not of the latter it may be objected that this is a merely external and superficial view of the matter general law it may be argued is so called because it is common to the whole realm and to all persons in it while special law is that which has a special and limited application to particular places or classes of persons in this contention there is an element of truth but it falls short of a logical analysis of the distinction in question it is true that the general law is usually wider in its application than special law it is chiefly for this reason indeed that the former is while the latter is not deemed worthy of judicial notice but we have here no logical basis for a division of the legal system into two parts much of the general law itself applies to particular classes of persons only the law of solicitors of auctioneers or of pawnbrokers is of very restricted application yet it is just as truly part of the ordinary law of the land as the law of theft homicide or libel which applies to all mankind the law of the royal prerogative is not special law by reason of the fact that it applies only to a single individual it is a constituent part of the general law on the other hand mercantile usage is dependent for its legal validity on its generality it must be the custom of the realm not that of any particular part of it yet until by judicial proof and recognition it becomes entitled for the future to judicial notice it is the special law merchant standing outside the ordinary law of the land the law of bills of exchange is no more general in its application now than it ever was yet it has now ceased to be special and has become incorporated into the general law the element of truth involved in the argument now under consideration is no more than this that the comparative generality of their application is one of the most important matters to be taken into consideration in determining whether judicial notice shall or shall not be granted to rules of law section twelve common law the term common law is used by english lawyers with unfortunate diversities of meaning it is one of the contrasted terms in at least three different divisions of the legal system one common law and statute law either common law is sometimes meant the whole of the law except that which has its origin in statutes or some other form of legislation 
It is the unenacted law that is produced by custom or precedent, as opposed to the enacted law made by Parliament or subordinate legislative authorities. 2. Common law and equity. In another sense, common law means the whole of the law, enacted or unenacted, except that portion which was developed and administered exclusively by the old court of chancery, and which is distinguished as equity. It is in this sense, for example, that we speak of the court of King's Bench, or Exchequer, as being a court of common law. 3. Common law and special law. In yet a third sense, common law is a synonym of what we have already called general law, the ordinary law of the land, as opposed to the various forms of special law, such as local customs, which will not be applied as a matter of course in the administration of justice, but only when specially pleaded and proved. The expression common law, jus commune, was adopted by English lawyers from the canonists who used it to denote the general law of the church, as opposed to those divergent usages, consuetudines, which prevailed in different local jurisdictions, and superseded or modified within their own territorial limits the common law of Christendom. This canonical usage must have been familiar to the ecclesiastical judges of the English law courts of the 12th and 13th centuries, and was adopted by them. We find the distinction between common law and special law, commune lay and a special lay, well established in the earliest yearbooks. The common law is the ordinary system administered by the ordinary royal courts, and is contrasted with two other forms of law. It is opposed in the first place to that which is not administered in the ordinary royal courts at all, but by special tribunals governed by different systems. Thus we have the common law in the court of king's bench, but the canon law in the ecclesiastical courts, the civil law in the court of admiralty, and at a later date the law which was called equity in the court of chancery. In the second place, the common law was contrasted with those various forms of special law, which were recognized even in the king's ordinary courts in derogation of the general law of the land. Thus it is opposed to local custom, la commune lay, and les usages del pays to the law merchant la common lay and la lay merchande to statute law and to conventional law specialis consentio contra jus commune the opposition of common and statute law is noteworthy statute law is conceived originally as special law derogating from the ordinary law of the king's courts it was contra jus commune just as contracts and local customs and the law merchant were contra jus commune. Such a point of view, indeed, is not logically defensible. A public and general statute does not bear the same relation to the rest of the law as a local or mercantile custom bears to it. Logically or not, however, statutes were classed side by side with the various forms of special law which derogated from the jus commune. Hence the modern usage by which the common law in one of its senses means unwritten or unenacted law, as opposed to all law which has its origin in legislation. Section 13. Law and Equity. Until the year 1873, England presented the extremely curious spectacle of two distinct and rival systems of law, administered at the same time by different tribunals. These systems were distinguished as common law and equity, or merely as law and equity, 
using the term law in a narrow sense as including only one of the two systems. The common law was the older, being coeval with the rise of royal justice in England, and it was administered in the older courts, namely the King's Bench, the Court of Common Pleas, and the Exchequer. Equity was the more modern body of legal doctrine, developed and administered by the Chancellor in the Court of Chancery as supplementary to and corrective of the older law. To a large extent, the two systems were identical and harmonious, for it was a maxim of the Chancery that equity follows the law, equitas secutor legem. That is to say, the rules already established in the older courts were adopted by the Chancellors and incorporated into the system of equity unless there was some sufficient reason for their rejection or modification. In no small measure, however, law and equity were discordant, applying different rules to the same subject matter. The same case would be decided in one way, if brought before the Court of King's Bench, and in another if adjudged in Chancery. The Judicature Act, 1873, put an end to this anomalous state of things, by the abolition of all portions of the common law which conflicted with equity, and by the consequent fusion of the two systems into a single and self-consistent body of law. The distinction between law and equity has thus become historical merely, but it has not for that reason ceased to demand attention. It is not only a matter of considerable theoretical interest, but it has so left its mark upon our legal system that its comprehension is still essential even in the practical study of the law. 1. The term equity possesses at least three distinct though related senses. In the first of these, it is nothing more than a synonym for natural justice. Equitas is equalitas, the fair, impartial, or equal allotment of good and evil, the virtue which gives to every man his own. This is the popular application of the term and possesses no special juridical significance. 2. In a second and legal sense, equity means natural justice, not simply, but in a special aspect, that is to say, as opposed to the rigour of inflexible rules of law. Equitas is contrasted with summum jus, or strictum jus, or the rigor juris, for the law lays down general principles, taking of necessity no account of the special circumstances of individual cases in which such generality may work injustice. So also the law may, with defective foresight, have omitted to provide at all for the case in hand, and therefore supplies no remedy for the aggrieved suitor. In all such cases, in order to avoid injustice, it is needful to go beyond the law, or even contrary to the law, and to administer justice in accordance with the dictates of natural reason. This it is that is meant by administering equity as opposed to law and so far as any tribunal possesses the power of thus supplementing or rejecting the rules of law in special cases it is in this reuse of the term a court of equity as opposed to a court of law the distinction thus indicated was received in the juridical theory both of the greeks and the romans aristotle defines equity as the correction of the law where it is defective on account of its generality and the definition is constantly repeated by later writers. Elsewhere, he says, an arbitrator decides in accordance with equity, a judge in accordance with law. And it was for this purpose that arbitration was introduced, namely that equity might prevail. In the writings of Cicero, we find frequent reference to the distinction between equitas and jus. He quotes as already proverbial the saying, summum jus, summa injuria 
meaning by summum jus the rigour of the law untempered by equity numerous indications of the same conception are to be met with in the writings of the roman jurists the doctrine passed from greek and latin literature into the traditional jurisprudence of the middle ages we may see for example a discussion of the matter in the tractatus de legibus of aquinas it was well known therefore to the lawyers who laid the foundations of our own legal system and like other portions of scholastic doctrine it passed into the english law courts of the thirteenth century there is good reason for concluding that the king's courts of that day did not consider themselves so straitly bound by statute custom or precedent as to be incapable upon occasion of doing justice that went beyond the law it was not until later that the common law so hardened into an inflexible and inexpensive system of strictum jus that aequitus fled from the older courts to the newly established tribunal of the chancellor the court of chancery an offshoot from the king's council was established to administer the equity which the common law had rejected and of which the common law courts had declared themselves incapable it provided an appeal from the rigid narrow and technical rules of the king's courts of law to the conscience and equity of the king himself speaking by the mouth of his chancellor the king was the source and fountain of justice the administration of justice was part of the royal prerogative and the exercise of it had been delegated by the king to his servants the judges these judges held themselves bound by the inflexible rules established in their courts but not so the king a subject might have recourse therefore to the natural justice of the king if distrustful of the legal justice of the king's courts here he could obtain equitas if the strictum jus of the law courts was insufficient for his necessities this equitable jurisdiction of the crown after having been exercised for a time by the king's council was subsequently delegated to the chancellor who as exercising it was deemed to be the keeper of the royal conscience three we have now reached a position from which we can see how the term equity acquired its third and last signification in this sense which is peculiar to english nomenclature it is no longer opposed to law but is itself a particular kind of law it is that body of law which is administered in the court of chancery as contrasted with the other and rival system administered in the common law courts equity is chancery law as opposed to the common law the equity of the chancery has changed its nature and meaning it was not originally law at all but natural justice the chancellor in the first days of his equitable jurisdiction did not go about to set up and administer a new form of law standing side by side with that already recognized in the court of common pleas his purpose was to administer justice without law and this purpose he in fact fulfilled for many a day in its origin the jurisdiction of the chancellor was unfettered by any rules whatever his duty was to do that which justice and reason and good faith and good conscience require in the case and of such requirements he was in each particular case to judge at his own good pleasure in due time however there commenced that process of the encroachment of established principle upon judicial discretion which marks the growth of all legal systems by degrees the chancellor suffered himself to be restricted by rule and precedent in his interpretation and execution of the dictates of the royal conscience just in so far as this change proceeded the system administered in chancery ceased to be a system of equity in the original sense and became the same in essence as the common law itself 
The final result was the establishment in England of a second system of law standing over against the older law, in many respects an improvement on it, yet no less than it, a scheme of rigid, technical, predetermined principles, and the law thus developed was called equity, because it was an equity that it had its source. Closely analogous to this equity law of the English Chancellor is the Jus Praetorium of the Roman Praetor. The Praetor, the supreme judicial magistrate of the Roman Republic, had much the same power as the Chancellor of supplying and correcting the deficiencies and errors of the older law by recourse to equitas. Just as the exercise of this power gave rise in England to a body of chancery law, standing by the side of the common law, so in Rome a jus praetorium grew up distinct from the older jus civile. Jus praetorium, says Papinian, est quod praetores intro taxerunt adjuvandi vel saplendi vel corrigendi juris civilis gratia propter utilitatum publicum. The chief distinction between the Roman and the English cases is that at Rome the two systems of law coexisted in the same court, the jus praetorium practically superseding the jus civile so far as inconsistent with it whereas in england as we have seen law and equity were administered by distinct tribunals moreover although the jus praetorium had its source in the aequitas of the praetor it does not seem that this body of law was ever itself called aequitas this transference of meaning is peculiar to english usage end of chapter two part two recording by ian stewart rosanna Victoria, Australia.